This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Schools statistically are safer than they've been in years. So why doesn't it feel like it? And is there anything teachers can do to make anxious students and parents feel better? Plus, the great EdTech revolution is here, right? Wrong, say our teachers. Those topics and kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. And I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Luann Fox, back again. What do you teach? Hi, I teach high school English. Uh, Lynn Shipley, you're also at the table. What do you teach? I'm an instructional coach, but I teach computers and to, in the middle school. And joining Luann and Lynn today for the first time, a new voice on the podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself? My name is Susana Elizarras. I teach sixth grade math in Kansas City, Missouri. So, Susana, welcome so much, and thank you for joining the No Wrong Answers team. Thank you. Uh, Lynn, Luann, and Susana are all educators in the Kansas City metro area. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, the Friday Cheat Sheet. At NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com, the Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode and also gives you a chance to review some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox. So sign up for the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. We recently noted the 20th anniversary of the shooting at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, an event that has had a profound effect on American education. As the New York Times recently noted, getting into schools nowadays is akin to passing through airport security, where visitors often have to present photo IDs, walk through metal detectors, be buzzed in through automatically locking doors. Likewise, districts over the past two decades have spent hundreds of millions of dollars hardening their schools, hiring more school resource officers, practicing over and over again active shooter drills. Despite all this, or maybe because of it, There is a paradox to American education two decades after Columbine. Schools, statistically, are actually safer than they've been in years. Kids nowadays are much less likely to be the victim of a violent crime in a school than they were back in the mid-1990s, before Columbine. But recent surveys show a large majority of parents of school-aged children, three-quarters, in fact, think schools are less safe than they used to be. Is there anything teachers can do to better square public perception with reality when it comes to school safety? So first, for my teachers here on this episode, uh, the drills and the extra security and the blanket media coverage when a, a rare but tragic event like the Parkland shooting last year happens, is it as simple as saying people are just freaked out by all that and that's why they are possibly having broad misperceptions about how safe schools are? Is it as simple as that? I think the anxiety level has been raised so much that uh, no one is able to separate that off from actual safety. I think because people are just living sort of like low-level or high-level anxiety that they just associate that with fear, and so they don't feel safe. I think, I'm sorry, I think in general, we're more afraid as a society. You know, I didn't live in these days, but I hear about the days when people left their doors unlocked and, you know, the kids could go play blocks down or down by the creek, and it, it 
it's it was generally pretty safe. Um, I think as a society, as a country, we're more afraid. Um, I think the media has a lot to do with that. Um, we get information very quickly, and and sc- a lot of scary information comes from that. So that's that's something to consider too. Uh, these uh, broad anxieties and fears uh, are they expressed in your parents and your families at your school? I mean, do they do they think that your schools are unsafe for their child? I mean, what do they say, and and how do they let you know that they they that they are anxious if they are? Well, definitely, our school uh, we have some issues with students fighting, which is not much different than it's always been. But the fact that kids can broadcast these things now via social media gives the perception that there's more violence in schools. So parents do feel the need to protect their children more. A couple uh, the children's need to broadcast everything with the parents' helicopter needs, and you have a, a, a pretty volatile mix. And so you're saying, I mean, parents will see... Um, videos or something posted to social media that that might suggest that there was a fight at school or even a video of a fight or a threat or some sort of of bullying that's going on and and that exacerbates a problem that's been there for years, decades, but in your opinion makes it worse? Definitely, definitely. When 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 you have your student who already could possibly feel unsafe, uh, videotapes an unsafe situation, then a parent wants to immediately come up and protect their uh, their child. With that said, sometimes the parent gets a little bit active, and now you have two problems. You have the student issue, and you have a parent issue. Yeah, Luann, you were nodding your head. Yeah, I was just thinking when you were talking about that, it's like that's... We now live in an age where um, if there's any kind of threat at school, I mean, the principal has to send out the the whole thing, right? The the email to all mm-hmm. the parents and, the, and everybody so that... Um, you know that he's so that the principal's covered, so that the school district is covered, and I and we didn't see that 20 years ago. There was no like every little anything that was going to happen at school. There had to be a blast that went out to all the parents, and uh, sometimes it's almost like too much information. Yeah, I mean, right? you see, you see yeah. this happen all the time locally here in the Kansas City area. There will be, I mean, invariably it happens, if not once a week, probably once once or twice a month, where a school or a district will send out a a statement, and mm-hmm. the the local TV stations will cover it or. It'll be you know put on Facebook. There'll be a statement like we received this threat, or yes. you know, a teacher reported that this found this note that said mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. something threatening, and the te- you know a student has been taken into custody. And you're saying that has like, that has like broader, broader social effects. You're saying. Well, I, 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 to Susanna's part um, point, uh, I I did grow up in a time when you could keep your door unlocked, mm-hmm. and uh, you know there used to be. Uh, gun racks on the back of trucks, you know, in the country. So kids would have rifles on campus all the time. The whole idea that uh, guns have now uh, caused these issues, uh, I think is a little silly. People create a lot of these issues for themselves. And it's so interesting because when you mentioned gun racks on the back of trucks, that's one of the things that is happening in my school district right now, and it's causing a mm-hmm. lot of um, concern and downright alarm. So you say are students coming to, to school driving driving vehicles with gun racks with guns in them uh, like on to campus? I don't know about the guns in them, but with gun uh, racks, I know that there are gun racks, and I do know that um, you know our we have had a report of uh, a gun being on our campus, not inside the building, but it's been on our campus and recently. So, I mean, that's, and that's not the first, second. What's or the effect time. when that, when that happens, when there's a report of that, that, 
you know, obviously, as you just said, the administration has to send a statement home to parents. Um, they have to publicize that. Um, what's the effect on your school community? I think it just raises the level of anxiety. But I mean, anytime you have adrenaline go up, you know, you, you, it's going to get shot after a while. And so what we're actually experiencing now is a little bit of that sort of fatigue, which is another another problem, another part of the problem, I think. You, know, you just desensitized. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, like we and and I've spoken to you about this before, or at least at least uh, written it to you. But I mean, like you know, we have a we have alarms that are supposed to go off anytime our school doors are open now because they're not supposed to be open mm-hmm. after um, you know thirty seconds and during the school day, everybody's supposed to come in only one entrance um, at, at all. But I mean, if the doors are open past a few seconds, the alarm goes off and the peel is like just ungodly, and so you're living in this alarm go off situation constantly at least at least I am and many many of my colleagues are so um it all it almost can promote PTSD at some point um and then the other side of it is that everybody gets so desensitized oh got to shut the door got to shut the door got to shut the door who's going to go shut the door and you're you're interrupting learning that if something bad were to happen with an alarm situation I'm not sure that our kids would move as fast uh a recent survey by the Associated Press and the NORC Center at the University of Chicago, uh, and this was the survey that I referenced in the intro to this segment, found that just 35% of parents surveyed feel very confident their child is safe at school. Less than half are confident local law enforcement and school officials can effectively deal with an active shooter situation. Um, we've kind of touched upon that in previous episodes. Uh, furthermore, about three-quarters in this survey, as I mentioned, say schools have gotten less safe over the past 20 years. So there is this perception um, that schools are getting less safe, and really it would seem to suggest it really is an effect of, of school shootings and the consequences of that. Um, as rare as those events are, is there any way for teachers, you all, to fight that perception with your parents. I mean, all three of you are saying that your parents are um, increasingly anxious, maybe on edge, might be going too far, but is there any way that you can fight the perception that your school is unsafe? I think one way to do that is to reassure our students. I think my kids, you know, are a source of that alarm, right? Because when we have those intruder drills, some of them, I teach in an elementary school, and so some of them, I can imagine, go home and say, that was so scary, you know, and the principal has to come around and, you know, shake on the door, and I, I remember those drills when I was a kid, and I was scared, you know, and so I think they go home, and, you know, as a parent, having your kid come and say, we had an intruder drill, um, it just brings back full circle into reality that, like, it, it is a... It is a possibility that it could happen, right? Um, I think as teachers, um, we have the responsibility to to kind of control that narrative, right? So when we are having the discussion after the intruder drill or before the intruder drill, saying, you know, we, we've always lived in a world where bad things can happen. Like, this isn't anything new. We just would like to be best prepared. You know, it's... It's all over. It's everywhere. You know, we have auto insurance, even though we might not get into a car wreck. You know, we have home insurance, even though we might not get broken into. Right. Um, And so teaching our kids and our students that it's not a scary thing to be prepared. Um, And and I think it would help keep them more calm and and families more calm in general. Uh, It's interesting that you said that you yourself, Susana, as a student, um, Mm -hmm. 
live through active shooter drills. I, yeah. I would venture to guess that you might be the only teacher at the table who, whose experience <laughs> as a student yeah. um, was like that. I wonder how that has colored your perception as a teacher since you kind of grew up in this era, yeah. this post-Columbine era. I was, I mean, it was a scary, I, I remember crying. I remember I was kind of a crybaby as a kid. You know, I cried a lot. And so I, and I really thought about my mom a lot when I was at school and so I remember being under desks or being in corners of dark rooms for, you know, 15 minutes, uncomfortably near a lot of other people, you know, um, uncomfortably having to be quiet. And I think kids, when they're little, they don't know that it's a, you know, they don't, they can't really swallow that it's a practice, right? Um, things are running through your mind. Like, okay, well, then why are we doing this, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and then you think of all the horror movies and you think, you know, all the scary things. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to make you more sympathetic, you think, to, to how your kids are feeling? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I'm a very realistic teacher. And so when we do have the conversation after, honestly, I teach sixth grade. And so it gets goofy. It gets weird, you know, we're giggling, we're laughing, we're touching each other, there are smells, you know, it's just, it's an uncomfortable situation. So after the intruder <laughs> drills, we're all kind of just like, it's not, you know, not taking it seriously. And unfortunately, I feel like it is my job to bring it back to reality and say, hey guys, I know this is weird. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's funny, you know, but understand that there's a reason why we do this we also do I'm sure you do this at your schools too but we've been trained as teachers right um, and we have a magnet in the door the door's locked at all times um, and the kids know the kids know you know that the magnet is there so that people could get it on a regular day but if an intruder were in the building you know teachers aren't to be fumbling with their keys and trying to lock mm -hmm. the door right okay um, so our it's a it's a natural normal part of our lives now. Yeah, I, I'm concerned Lynn. the fact <clears throat> the fact that we manage by crisis. Yeah, I mean the fact that we have created a society where guns are abundant. We should not be surprised when they fall in the hands of students or people that are less than desirable characters. Uh, and so when we have our schools are constantly managing in a reactive manner mm -hmm. as opposed to a proactive manner, we lose the ability <coughs> to have honest discussions with our students that will enable them to make better choices. Um, everything that we're doing, the, the, the magnets on the door, the, the double security trying to get into a school, yeah. I have no idea how we're going to build community schools when we practice keeping everyone out. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, to that point, Lynn, um, something I did want to ask about, you know, a study published last month in the journal Violence and Gender reviewed schools practices for um, you know, preventing active shooters and gun violence on campus dating back to 2000. Some of the measures you're talking about, like um, automatically locking doors and security procedures at the doors and checking for IDs and, and security cameras. And this study basically came to the conclusion that these practices of hardening schools and adding security protocols has essentially had no effect on actually stopping school shootings. To quote the study, um, none of the methods have empirical evidence to show that they actually diminish firearm violence in schools. They are, in fact, creating a false sense of security, end quote, and in fact might also be exacerbating fears and anxieties. Um, that's my own editorial gloss. Um, 
would schools be better off if they just stopped spending resources on this type of stuff and doing more, um, I guess, like what you're alluding to is building more community schools, or is that even possible anymore? Have we gone too far down the road where we could go back? How about more mental health? Yeah. <laughs> help. I mean, really, um, more, more, more counselors, perhaps, right. uh, you know, that I, kind of thing. I think we have uh, the number of uh, SROs outnumber the number of counselors in a lot of school districts. Mm -hmm. And so you're using punitive measures as opposed to teaching or rehabilitative. That's yeah. correct. It seems that at least for school shootings, um, and I've just been thinking about this, they, they fall into a couple different categories. I mean, you get the shooter that just has, I don't know what else I would say, but undifferentiated anger or just sickness or something. I mean, they're just mad at the world. I mean, that's like New Newton. Um, that's like Newtown. Park, Newtown yeah, and yeah. that's like Parkland, right? But if you're going to hate specific students, I mean, that was Klebold and... Eric Harris. That's what I'm saying. The Columbine oh, shooters, yeah. Right. But they hated some kids, right? And that's what they wanted to do was go and annihilate some kids. And and they they had a death wish. I mean, they knew they were going to annihilate themselves as well. But even in, in the Santa Fe shooting that was like a year ago in May, I mean, the person came in at 7.40 a.m. to shoot very specific people. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that we should target that. It's like, you know. You say what those is, are different. I, I kind of think so because it's kind of like, what is it like when you don't have a mechanism to handle the people that you don't like at school, right? So how can we teach kids to deal with that and get along with kids at school? And then how do we teach other people to just deal with some general issues about anger that's undifferentiated when you just want to, like, blow up the world? I think when kids are little, we're teaching them, you know, it, we, we all need to get along, we all need to be friends. We're a family. We need to love each other. Um, we need to share, you know, and that's not necessarily the way the world works, right? I'm not going to like everyone that I work with. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be best friends with everyone that I'm around. And so it's okay for me to have conflict. It's okay for me to have um, people that I just genuinely don't get along with, you know? Now, how do I react in those situations? You know, um, that's a better lesson that we need to be teaching our kids instead of we it's perfect. You know, you need to be getting along with each other. And it's like that's not the world we live in. You know, we are going to get into confrontations with people. And so how do you handle it correctly? Like Luann was saying with, you know, I'm mad at you. Um, you've done something to hurt me. How do I handle this? You know, um, when it goes unaddressed for so long, then may, that anger builds up, and, and I'm not making excuses because obviously there's no excuse. But um, I think we need to teach kids also that it's okay that you're not going to get along with each other and how to solve those problems. Uh, just how safe are your schools, or how do you feel your schools? Um, do you feel your schools are safe? And I ask because um, federal data show that between... Well, get the years right here. 1992 to 2016, just 3%, now I say just 3%, still, but 3% of youth homicides occurred at schools at the same time. Um, rates of physical fights, reported thefts, instances of bullying on school campuses, maybe surprisingly, have all been steadily declining um, since the early 90s at school. Um, in many cases and in many communities, you could argue plausibly that, that school is the safest place. Um, do you feel your schools are safe? I personally don't feel they're much different than they were when I was growing up. I grew up in Southern California, and we were talking earlier, 
And I remember <laughs> this district going on lockdown. You're a San Diego because, district. Yeah. yeah, San Diego district. When because, you were a kid. Because Brenda Spencer, uh, you know, we were talking about didn't like Mondays and decided to sit in her living room and shoot at the elementary school across the street. The difference is that although that made national news. That was a well-known um, event back in the back in the 70s. Late 70s, yes, yeah. That a lot of previously a lot of shootings were regionalized because you did not have a 24-hour news cycle because you did not have people competing to make the most sensationalized story, then you were able to contain some of that um, entertainment property that takes place now mm-hmm. when uh, you have these large school shootings. I personally feel my school is safe. They are instances that we have put into place to capture those students who are outside of the normal bounds of safety. But for the most part, we capture it. We, we find them. Students are willing to tell. That's what I love about our students. They, they have a snow snit, no snitching policy, but darn it, they snitch every day, all day long. And so they, they want to feel safe also. Yeah. So, you know, the students want to be safe. The teachers want to be safe. The administrators want to be safe. The parents want to be safe. I think it's safer than we think so it you is. Fe- so you say you feel safe at your school. I feel school, safe yeah. at my school. Yeah. Susanna, Luann? And you can define safety however you want to, whether it be a fear of school shootings or just general safety, mental health, what you were talking about earlier. I think our kids are, um, there's a sensualization or, you know, there's like just this awe factor, like, whoa, you know, about crime and about um, even about murder, you know, and about like when you when our kids hear about things like that, it's almost like well, that was right down the street from my house. And, you know, like, oh, my mom was there. And, you know, it's just the, the being desynthesized, right? Um, and so I work in the city where the crime rate, you know, is higher and all of that. And so our kids are almost not phased by it. You know, we've had uh, lockdowns when they were like car chases or when someone had robbed the corner store down the street and, you know, people were looking for the suspect and things like that. Um, and our kids, I mean, particularly in sixth grade, I think they're old enough and they just like, it's just another day in the city, right? Um, do they look at, do they look at their school as um, a refuge? Or I do. They, yeah. I, I do that think that, going? yes, <laughs> sorry. I was yeah. going, I'm yeah. sorry. No, That's where yeah. I was going, which is that I, I think at school we feel safe. Mm. Um, and I think they know that they have the tools now that if something were to happen that they never had to use, right, um, they would be prepared. So I think for the most part, our kids do feel safe. Yeah. And I, f- I feel safe. I mean, I grew up in the neighborhood where I teach, and so that's a little different. But I feel safe as a teacher. Luann. I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm, I'm interested. I'm going to probably go You're, categorically no. Really? And yeah. that's sad. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm the downer probably in, in the group, I guess. Well, why I just, do you, so why, why do you no, say no, that? No, I just don't feel it at all. I mean, in, uh, in, in the high schools in my district – I mean, we have like 2,200 students in the school. In most of those schools from end to end, that's a quarter of a mile. We have one SRO. We've got cameras. I mean, like you could hire somebody to just look at the cameras all day long to try to make somebody feel safe. And we obviously don't have the... The human power to do that, and we're, and we're not going to do that. And you, you get kids that are going to be excused at all times of the day, and they don't go out the front office. They're going to go out any of the n- number of <laughs> doors that are there. And anybody who wants to watch can come in that door that a student goes out of. Um, that's 
no, I don't feel like it's hmm. safe at all. And we've we've recently revised our policy. We used to have a policy um, with students um, and faculty that basically said we will reunify if we're going to run away from the school. You know, if there's an active shooter situation, because due to the Alice training and the and the new. Um, procedures that are in place. We were going to reunify. Well, reunification is kind of uh, not going to happen. And so they basically said, run to safety and we'll catch up with you later. And that can't make anybody feel safe. That doesn't make faculty feel safe. It doesn't make students feel safe. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. That has to probably be the way that it is reality. If, if there's going to be a shooter, you just have to run and be every person for yourself. And I guess we'll catch up ask, with you later. So can I ask, Luan, so... <laughs> A lot of the more notorious, deadly school shootings dating back to Columbine have happened at suburban high schools that are mm-hmm. mostly, the student populations are mostly white, right. very very much reflecting the school that you work at. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Do you think that plays a factor into how you feel about how safe your school is? Yes, because I think the anger about, I mean, our, our students aren't angry about not being able to eat, and our students really aren't angry about some of those things on Maslow's hierarchy that you're going to see in more urban and possibly rural schools. I mean, what my students, what our students are angry about, what's happening with um, Twitter fights and social media problems um, are on a fairly different level that you could see that looks like a lot more like Columbine. And uh, so, yeah, there's 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 fear. And I think the thing that um, hangs us together is is what Lynn had mentioned about, well, uh, will kids tell, right? Will kids tell if they don't feel uh, safe or will they tell if there's a gun situation? And, and in and in my district, there's there hasn't been just one or two um, over the last three to five years of, of guns brought to campus mm-hmm. where they those situations have been quelled. But the situations are there, and I think everybody knows that that can happen at any time. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. It's long been the belief of some in Silicon Valley that new innovations in education technology would not only dramatically improve student achievement, but also fundamentally alter how kids do school. Trends like one-to-one technology, personalized learning, augmented or virtual reality have all at one time been billed as the next revolution in education. Take the claim made in the 2008 book Disrupting Class by Clayton Christensen, which is often cited as a landmark work in the area of education technology. Christensen claimed in 2008 that by the year 2019, half of all American high school classes would be taken online. That looks comical now. Teachers still don't seem to be buying the hype. A new survey of some 700 K-12 teachers done by the Education Week Research Center, finds that teachers remain largely skeptical of the grandiose promises made by EdTech evangelists. Most teachers say their schools have received new technology in the past three years, but less than a third say that technology has altered their view of what school should look like, and fewer than half say it's changed their belief of how students learn best. Now, there is a bit of nuance to these survey results. It's not that teachers are not using technology. From digital devices to learning apps to new software, many are using the latest that EdTech has to offer. But it's that these new innovations have not, in teachers' eyes, changed 
what school fundamentally is. You know, the traditional archetype, kids in rows, a teacher at the front most of the time, <laughs> writing on a whiteboard or going over a PowerPoint. Um, is that still the reality in your schools, um, that traditional view of education? And do you see that changing anytime soon? I think, I think almost the traditional style of teaching is like forbidden. Like if 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 people walked into a classroom and saw you working out of te- textbooks or saw you working on what looks to be a worksheet, um, you know, I think I think a good majority of people would say that's not good teaching anymore. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So you 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 do think there has been a shift in what good teaching looks like or what good schooling looks like? I would say that. Uh, if I was going to be honest, if we lo- really looked at what uh, parents in Silicon Valley do, they send their students to schools that sort of uh, reject the use of technology until they get older. No, I used to live in Silicon Valley, yeah, I know. The Waldorf schools. The used, Waldorf they, they, schools. They send them to Waldorf schools yes. where you have to build your own desk. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, so I think it is sort of uh, hypocritical. And d- d- digital devices are not allowed. <laughs> right. You have to build your own desk? Yeah. 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 Well, that's 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 one of the things that Waldorf schools are famous for. I don't know if all Waldorf schools do that. I shouldn't paint with a broad brush, but but so I, I think it's extremely hypocritical, and I think it's just a money making device to continue to push technology, education technology, uh, education technology yeah. up on uh, urban, suburban, and rural schools when that is not what you're doing. Well, let me with let me ask students. all three of you here. Have you of all three of you are your schools have your schools gotten? digital devices or some sort of education technology learning app recently in the last three years. Yeah. Luann yes. looks at me like I'm insane, like I have <laughs> like I have an eye in the middle of my forehead, like of course. Ab- yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I love what Lynn said about, um, I mean, she was she said a point that I was going to make because I'm thinking, is it Silicon Valley's belief that this is really good for education or is this a way for tech to just get more money? Like here's another avenue. So we'll tell the ed people that they need this in order to like help the kids survive in this evolving world and we make more money. There's no evidence of effectiveness that we really can put behind it to make that to make sure that's yeah. working. So you feel used? You feel like manipulated, or just kind of? You're, yeah, you're to- you seem totally dismissive of the idea. <laughs> yeah. You I, seem, t- yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I'll tell you. It, <laughs> There's just so many moving parts that go to this. I mean, you know, you, you, you can you can reach back to like a nation of wimps, Haru Mastrano's piece that's done in, I don't know how old that book is by now, 06 or so, that basically says, you know, kids are overscheduled, we're not allowing kids yeah. to be kids, and so therefore, um, you know, because kids know more about technology, because they're immigrants, we're immigrants and they're natives. Um, we now have the first, we're raising the first generation of kids who like know more technologically than we know. And so um, that gives them a sense of entitlement and a sense of superiority. But because they're so scheduled, because it's a super competitive world, that the kids will take their adolescence on the back end since we're not giving them to this on the front end. So we're not growing kids up, you know, in the way that we need to. So I'm, I'm telling you about all that because teaching kids to self-regulate we're kind of expecting kids when we put digital devices in their hands to be able to self-regulate and i'm thinking about myself before the digital age and lynn too um 
you know, it's just like, I'm not sure that I really self-regulated as, as an adolescent. I think that was something that I actually learned. So I don't blame the kids for not even being able to stay off of their cell phones. And right. I probably did 10 years ago, but I don't even blame so them. So you're pointing out a, you're pointing out what could potentially be a, a fundamental flaw in like giving kids one-to-one technology, putting them on Chromebooks, um, introducing I guess what you would call personalized learning software or apps that allow them to direct or customize their own education experience, that you're saying they're not self-regulated enough yet to do that effectively. Could I customize my (laughs) own education experience? Because when I am 8, 12, and 16, I probably don't know what I need to know Mm -hmm. to get down the road. But somebody who knows more, a teacher, you know, who could help me, that's a person who who could help guide me down the road. And it's like, I don't think that we can do that to our kids today and say, you can can direct your own learning. But that is just a nostalgic view of education. Uh, No, this is directly directly in my wheelhouse. Go for it. <laughs> my, my students, um, they had to learn how to use the library before we got on the computers. And they hated it, but the but they became knowledgeable of how to look up information to make sure it was factual in order for them to You're talking succeed. about the actual library. The uh, every <laughs> yes, single okay. class the brick and mortar library. library. Every single class went through the library. When they did their first report, they had to open up books to title pages. Mm-hmm. They had to cite references, and they were looking at me like I was crazy. Yet, I, got, I had a student that got into an argument with his senior teacher and said, Miss Shipley taught me how to do it this way, and that's how he was doing it. Mm-hmm. And she said, I understand that. Things have changed a little bit. But they were very adamant at that age that they were self-directed in their learning because they had that process as they were younger. So you're, I, I agree with yep. Luann. You cannot replace uh, scaffolding with a computer. Hmm. I think that's the hard part for us teachers is that the responsibility is on us to teach them how to self-regulate and to teach them how to use so technology. So if you're given a Chromebook cart or you're given... Exactly. You, and and you're being told to... Because the way they see technology in the world, like Luann said, is I'm on my phone from the time I get home to the time I go to bed. And so technology for them is almost like a piece of candy, you know, or like something that that satisfies them so much. But But it's almost like brushing their teeth more than that because that's what you have to do every day. You don't even think about it. These kids just like it's like an extension of who they are. Exactly, It's an extension of who they are. And then but me as a teacher, if I want to use that technology in a a productive way, which has its pros, um, I have to teach it. I have to teach how to self-regulate. I have to teach. And it's a problem to this day. I mean, our kids, particularly in my class, if I if we're on a um, like individualized program that helps them learn, you know, and catch mm-hmm. up and all of those things, um, there are on a weekly basis I'm catching people playing video games instead of being on that program. Here's my belief for that: adolescents, they're supposed to play on the games. That's their job. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. they're supposed to push yeah. back in every yep. way, shape, and form. Yep. In anything you give them, mm-hmm. it is up to us to have better tools. Yep. Just like we used to pass notes when I was a kid, yeah. the teachers had to become smarter yep. at figuring right. out how we pass notes. I used yep. uh, School View to make sure my students were on task. Can you explain what School View is? Real fast, school so View hooks up all of the, <laughs> the students' monitors to the teacher's computer. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I can look at every single desktop. Was that something provided by your district? Yes, by the yeah. Can- yeah. yeah. I, I can look at every single desktop and I can know who's doing what when. Yeah. And it's a, just a flick of a button that says, uh, I need you to come here because you're off task. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And yep. so, so the same uh, proactivity that took place when I was a kid where we thought we were slick. It, it doesn't change. That mm-hmm. is what a student is supposed to do. And I let my kids know that. You're yep. supposed to buck the system. You're supposed to ask questions. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to figure out how you can get away with things. Mm-hmm. That's your job. It is my job to be in front of you. Yeah. I mean, our school has Chromebooks, and we are um, definitely on a um, one-to-one, well, not Chromebooks, but, I mean, one-to-one initiative. So, I mean, our our students are able to have those in their hands uh, it just makes their their need to be on the cell phone as a distraction. Um, it it that it just makes it worse. I'm three weeks away from an AP exam, and I remember just this last week, I, a, a window just like shut in my brain, and it was in the middle of the week, and I'm like, I'm done. I'm just done. I have I have With cell phones. Well, yes, because I try to engage my students from bell to bell. So what I hear always on the back end is, well, this is hard and this is challenging. Well, welcome to AP, you know, whatever. <laughs> but the students are making it worse because on, on any given day, I'm only given half of the brain cells because I can engage them every single minute, but they've got their cell phone out in front of them and they're dealing with whatever Twitter war or texting situation or whatever has to do with their brains are constantly split. So here's what I did. I said, we're not doing this anymore and you must surrender your cell phones. And yeah, I got a little put, bit of pushback and because I teach juniors. They're like, are you kidding? How old are we? And I said, are you kidding? This is the situation. We're just not, not going to argue it. And here's what's happened that people don't want to admit because they're whispering to me. Thank you. Because now I can actually concentrate. So, no, I think that there's no, I think there's really an undercurrent of kids who, you know how they say kids want structure, even though they're never going to tell you they want structure. I really think that goes here, too, because when I'm hearing on the back end in whispers, I actually got some stuff done and I can concentrate. I think they actually maybe want that, but they're never going to tell you that. Um, So that that leads me into a question I want to ask about a New York Times story that was recently published um, about how students in two communities in South Central Kansas earlier this year protested their district's use of an online education platform called Summit Learning. Um, one dis- Students in one district walked out. Um, students in another district held a sit-in. Um, Summit Learning purports to, um, as we've said, customize learning for students um, allow them to self-direct their learning through units and through even whole subjects by having um, you know, materials and resources posted online that they can work through at their own pace. But students um, began complaining about you know spending hours of each school day in front of laptops, not getting enough help from teachers, basically just um, not enjoying school. This was supposed to be the vision of the disrupted school that I think a lot of um, people in Silicon Valley have um, talked about. Um, that story caught my eye for a rather personal reason. At one time, I taught at Summit Public Schools, the California-based charter school network whose founder has now started and runs Summit Learning. I mean, in fact, one year when I taught at Summit High in Redwood City, California, we piloted a beta version of what's now become Summit Learning. And I mean, just speaking from personal experience, we encountered a lot of similar complaints from students and parents um, to what is now being reported happening in Kansas. Um, mm-hmm. Just parents and teachers um, and students uncomfortable with what they were being asked to do. Um, anyway, uh, Luanne, I think what you were saying kind of gets to that. I, I think students and families um, are skeptical of the use of technology in their schools and want 
still want like the vision of, of school, whatever it may be. They, they still kind of want that. And from the teacher's perspective, which we really haven't kind of addressed yet very much, I mean, like, what is the teacher's role in all of this? Is it to really kind of just babysit? Because if it really kind of is, then I think teachers should be paid babysitter wages, which is so much per kid in the classroom. And then you would see teacher salaries go way up because if that's really their job and they're really babysitting, they're babysitting 130 or more kids, you know, at, at a time. And... I just, I just, I just find it sad because it's going to help contribute to, I think, the deprofessionalization of our of our jobs. Yeah. Uh, well, before we go to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. Denver Public Schools Chief of Safety says he is reviewing the district's policies for using handcuffs on students. The review comes after a father posted to social media recently that his seven-year-old son had been handcuffed at school. At a recent board meeting, the board president said, quote, I have an incredibly difficult time imagining any scenario where a very young person should be put in handcuffs, end quote. Teachers' average weekly wages adjusted for inflation have actually fallen since the mid-1990s. That's according to a new analysis by the left-leaning Economic Policy Institute, which finds that teachers make, on average... About $1,195 per week. It must be before, ta- or before taxes, which is down $21 from where that figure was in 1996 in terms of today's dollars. Mm. Uh, at the same time, the average weekly wages of other college-educated professionals have gone up by more than $300 over the same period and now stand at $1,777 per week. And a 19-year classroom veteran who teaches social studies at a juvenile detention center in Richmond, Virginia, is the 2019 National Teacher of the Year. Rodney Robinson says he wants to use his platform over the next year to advocate for what he calls economic and cultural equity in schools, Robinson told CBS. By economic equity, he means making sure all students receive the resources to achieve what they deserve and cultural equity, needing to make sure all students have teachers and people who look like them in schools. Those are some of the other education stories that caught our eye this week. Coming up, Kids These Days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Susanna is new, so we will uh, allow Luann and Linda go first so they yes, can uh, provide an exemplar. Yes. Uh, Luann, what are your kids into? Well, they're all were crazy about the the new Avengers movie, right? The no game, Right. And then and the whole... No spoilers. Ant- I know. <laughs> like, the whole what happens with the Ant-Man, Thanos thing. No spoilers. Thing. I know. I know. But that, okay. But so, your kids are so talking about it. A bunch and like the theories that they're they're really into that as well. But they're also into Duolingo bird memes. So that's another thing. If someone else I don't even to... what is, what is that? I'll 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 come back with you. <laughs> um, are you a, are you big into the Marvel movies, Luann? Uh, I like Black Panther a lot. Yeah. And uh, so I pick and choose. Yeah. So I will say that is a cultural phenomenon that I'm completely ignorant of. Like the the Avengers, like all the way through. 
Yeah, I mean, I've seen a couple of the the movies here and there, but yeah. just like the, the grand scope of it, and I think there was a there was like Infinity Wars before yeah. this, and now Endgame, and like half of them died in Infinity War. Right, like, exactly. I, 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 like Game of Thrones is my thing. Oh, so, really? So when people are in, you know talk about Game of Thrones, I, I'm all into that. But so the, I'm a cafeteria the, the chooser Avengers, on the whole, like that Avengers. Yeah, thing, the so. Avengers thing. Yeah. I you know I I know nothing about. Got it. But your kids are into it. Oh yeah, Lynn. Yes. What are your kids into? Do your test do 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 do. We are doing. <laughs> do they have a little song? Oh, so yes, the, we do. There's a song to get them hyped up for testing. <laughs> yes, and it's the we, baby shark. It sounds it's like the baby shark song. <laughs> yes. So do your test, get your rest, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Oh so gosh. our kids have been singing the baby shark song with the uh, test encouragement lyrics. <laughs> so. Do your testing. Da, 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 yep. your... Well, I'm a father of a two-year-old, so I can oh, appreciate man. that. <laughs> so it's funny to see a 14-year-old boy walking down the hallway talking about, get your rest. <laughs> but it's, it's enjoyable. The things we do for kids. <laughs> um, and okay, Susanna, you get, that, you get the hang of this. You get the idea. Um, yeah. What are your kids into? This is hard because there's a lot of things they're into. I mean, I'm sure it's been brought up, but Fortnite's a really big thing oh. with, our, with our kids. Oh. So it's it's like we're walking in the hallway and they're doing the dances. And I'm like, I don't care as long as you're doing it quietly. But, you know, the dances at recess, you'll probably see it fi- at least five of the 80 that I teach. It's funny. So we, a couple weeks ago dance. we had Fortnite was a segment we talked about. Um, oh, yeah? Well, it was, it was part of a segment. But some of our teachers then were saying that it actually has kind of faded. But not yeah. at your school. I think maybe it's my age group. Mm. I think because my kids are 11, 12. I think the high schoolers aren't really into it anymore, right? Yeah. Um, but I think we smaller ones take a little while to learn the cool stuff. Right. It's been passed take, down. It has to be, you know, passed down. Okay. You know. And their friends have to also stop liking it. Because then else, who are they going to play their video games with? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, someone mentioned something. There's another kind of like battle royale game now. Oh, it's kind of for, like, for some high schoolers that has taken that's taken over. I can't remember what the name of it was, but someone a couple weeks ago mentioned it in our Fortnite segment. Um, well, very good, Susanna. So thank you so much for you. for joining us on your first episode. Thanks to all of our teachers, Luann, Lynn, and Susanna. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio. And remember, kids. Are you all going to three going to do it? Okay. And remember, kids. Be Be nice nice to to your your teachers. teachers.